courthouse. We may be judged as women, but we must remember that we are detectives. And whether we wear skirts or trousers is immaterial to what we do. It's human nature to make mistakes, Kitty. We sometimes might fail, but we should not be defined by our failures. It's eight o'clock. Let us begin. This is Mita Delmonico's The Alienist Podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're talking about the season finale of season two of The Alienist Angel of Darkness. Tonight's episode was called Better Angels. I'm sad. I'm sad that this is the final episode. I have a question about the title, Better Angels. So I've heard about it in two contexts. One is the famous inauguration speech by Abraham Lincoln, his first inauguration address, where he talks about better angels of our nature, basically implying that not all angels are created equal. Then there's also a renowned psychology book called Better Angels of Our Nature, highlighting the decline of violence in our society, which I disagree with, but however. So I was just trying to think of like, which better angels was this maybe referring to? You know, when I think of the phrase, I, and I was I was pulling up the quote, uh, I think of the West Wing because it was Toby in like a in a hissy fit rage. I think it was in season one. Yells at the president that his demons were shouting down his better angels. So when I hear that phrase, actually, that's what I always think of. I, I think I've always taken it as kind of like the devil on your shoulder, the angel on your shoulder, and which one do we choose to listen to? Which one do we embrace? And I think there was a lot of this episode about embracing your better angels at the end of the day, even from the unlikely sources. You know, at the end of the day, Libby doesn't give in to her demons. At the end of the day, Burns doesn't give in to his demons. They listen to their better angels. Sarah sacrifices John. She could have made that a lot harder on him, but, you know, listens to her better angels. John does what he thinks is right, listens to his better angels, at least as he sees them. And Laszlo chooses love and experience and life and goes with Karen, listens to his better angels. So I think there was, I think it was a lot of that in this episode, resisting the temptation to do harm to others or do harm to yourself, or other words, listening to your better angels. But again, everything in my life is either friends, derived from friends or derived from the West Wing. So there's some really good sources to derive references from. Someone of our age, for sure, anyway. I think it's definitely generationally on point. Yes. And uh, teleplay for this episode was by Stuart Carolan and Karina Wolf, and it was directed by David Caffrey. What did you think of this season finale? <sighs> it was a roller coaster for me, really, emotionally. There was just so much going on. Sarah's emotions getting away and getting the better of her a couple of times. Libby's roller coaster for sure. I thought it was interesting that we kind of ended up where we began with Sarah in the uh, execution room. I thought the uh, show did a really good job bookending the beginning of the series, not only ending up in the electric, uh, the electric chair room, but also her speech to her employees where in, in the beginning of the season, these, all of these novices at being real detectives, you know, she has to remind them that this is not like the stolen China 
of the rich white lady. This is a life and death case that they're taking on when it's uh, the, you know, Linaris baby. The, the very first episode of the season ends with her saying, you know, so it begins. At the end of this, she gives her speech now to these battle-hardened employees and welcoming Kitty Burns, which we definitely got to put a pin in that one, and says, you know, so we begin. Maybe it was a little hokey, but I, it was really effective for me. I thought it was a really nice way to bookend it. And also, uh, there were a lot of points in this episode that, again, reiterated and drove any doubt out of anyone's mind that this was not Laszlo's season. This was not the season of the alienist. This was the season of the of the capable, badass female detective. This was Sarah's season. And I think ending the episode with her speech, it just all, uh, you know, Laszlo handing the reins to her to interrogate Libby, I think there were just a lot of, if you haven't gotten it by this point in the season, we are going to bold italics underscore the fact that this is Sarah's season. I thought it worked really well as a series finale. If they choose not to continue on in the Chrysler series or the Chrysler world, if, if this is the end for this crew and this show, I thought this worked really well for a series finale. So I was happy with it. So we want to dive into the episode? Sure. Let, let's start with Libby because I feel I was proven a little right uh, at the end of the day about Libby. If you listen back to our episodes, I always had this real pity for her. I had this this feeling about Libby that she was really not acting out of malice, but really acting from a wounded place. And I think tonight's episode bore that out because at the end of the day sarah was able to reach her laszlo was able to reach her she did not cause harm to clara to john to sarah you know yeah sure she bit the ear off of the police detective but you know to be fair they were torturing her they were waterboarding her you know they were giving her the burned third degree literally third degree i had immense pity for libby at the end of her story i think she is a pitiful creature you know, there was something about her that I really liked or not liked, but there was something about her that really resonated with me and struck me much more as a wounded creature than a deadly homicidal creature. She was very much a product of her making, especially parents tend, you know, tend to make the monsters uh, that their children become uh, in a lot of ways. And, and I think I think she was really much a product of that. For me, at the end of the story, I was happy with how the Libby story played out. I was happy that she lived or at least until the electric chair anyway. And I was happy that she made good choices at the end of the day. How about you? What was your general feeling with Libby at the end of this episode? Because you've been kind of a hard ass on her all season. <laughs> I have been because they did a fantastic job in opening up her story. So she comes off as this very shy, tentative creature, really. I guess that's really the word that Laszlo used. And then she morphs into this homicidal maniac. And as we go through the arc of her story, we find out all of the wounds that she's been inflicted in over her life. And you really do start to see how she's evolved, how she's come to be in this place. And she's not at fault 100% for the actions that she's, she's taking because she's coming from a place of hurt. She's coming from a place where she's been wronged in the most horrific ways possible. We've seen this play out, but we've seen it in reverse almost. We've seen her become the homicidal maniac from the very tentative. So you have the Jekyll and Hyde story aspect, and then we start learning about her. So they've done a very masterful job in laying out how she became how she did. And the way that they did it is very poignant for people like me who were just like, what the fuck is the matter with this person? But it was just a really well done 
story arc for me. And yes, how she did end up, I'm happy that she lived. She made better choices. She did not, as you said, hurt Clara. So and that she lived and they get to study her for as long as it takes for her to get to the electric chair. So I was happy about that because they were robbed of that in the Beecham case. They absolutely were. And and, and what, what kind of irony that Laszlo finally gets a criminal to study one with goodwill earned from the police department. Finally, he's not, you know, he's not this leper necessarily anymore after goodwill earned with Burns. And he goes off to Vietti's. I mean, to be around to study her, she'll surely be dead and fried before he returns. So, so some irony there, it would have been a nail in the coffin of a season full of heartbreak and sadness for her to have died or to have been killed. Uh, There was a part, a part there where she has Clara that I thought she was going to turn on herself. I thought she was going to kill herself there for a hot minute before she pathetically kind of puts up her hands and surrenders. And I like that Sarah scolds the police officers into not shooting her. And Burns is so cowed by her at this point that I don't get the instance that there was any, any ounce that he was thinking about countermanding Sarah at that point and, and, and having his men shoot her. You know, he really fell in line with Sarah in this episode. And so, yeah, I I think this is the best possible outcome, given all of the destruction and hurt she inflicted and was inflicted upon her. Actually, she's lucky to have lived because of the the jailbreak scene, because the cops would have wanted vengeance. So the fact that she lived is, is remarkable, given the time. From the point of the jailbreak scene, which was really well executed as far as the scene goes, and so dramatic watching Laszlo and Sarah walk through the empty station and seeing all of the dead bodies, it's like watching Les Mis when they slowly turn the barricade and all of the students are dead and laying mm-hmm. and hanging on the barricade. It, it, it was as effective as that and haunting all at once. Yeah, but I think when you take in the time frame from when that happens to when she ends up surrendering, I don't think it's actually very long. It may not even be wide well known what actually happened at the police station. You know, yeah, the ra- the raid on a police station happens at nighttime and then they run off to the hunter house and then the surrender comes at the hunter house. There's there's probably actually only a couple of hours between those events. Burns and his men may, may not even really realize the extent of death that they wrought upon their fellow officers. That's a good point. And which at that point, she's probably really lucky that she's probably at Blackwell Island for the criminally insane or wherever the fuck they have her in the woman's jail. Because you're right, the police probably would have shanked her or shipped her somewhere. Uh, all of my, you know, she's a pathetic creature. She deserves our pity. You know, don't hate on her, you know, too, too much. You know, f- feel feel some sympathy, if not empathy for, for her. All of that being aside, John has her pinned on the floor and she says, that baby, he ain't mine. Ooh, Libby. Oh, Libby, you, you picked a bad time to become lucid as far as earning earning the popular vote. Jesus. What did you think of, uh, what was your take from her saying that? Did you think that baby Vanderbilt was like a goner at that point? Oh, I thought he was for sure a goner. I, I, there was, it was just like, oh, sweet Jesus, what, ha- what have you done with that baby? Because Gugu even mentions that later on that she doesn't want it anymore. So between hearing Libby say that in the very first scene and hearing Gugu say it like 10 minutes later, I was like, oh, sweet Jesus, this poor baby's going to be just gone because she's not feeding it anymore. And there isn't like, you know, baby bottles aren't really a thing. So I'm like wondering, how is this poor child eating? So I was very nervous for baby Vanderbilt. So, you know, I'll give Gugu knock some credit when they're in the old meat market, uh, the old Northern boneless meat uh, company, you know, when he's talking to Ding Dong, 
he never actually suggests killing the baby. He just says he'll leave it, which right. I thought was actually pretty magnanimous because I imagine there's not probably many things that Google leaves alive in this world if he's given a chance. Another complicated character all season. Google wasn't, you know, in some ways he was despicable and really horrible and easy to hate and really kind of gross. But in other ways, he was a really devoted boyfriend. Even now, even after going all tits up sideways, he's still talking about, I, I don't think Libby even wants this baby no more. You know, he's like really considerate of Libby's feelings. He's all in on that relationship. It's kind of romantic in a psychotic kind of way. I appreciated that he didn't consider killing the baby. At least they gave baby Vanderbilt a fighting chance by leaving it alone with the rabid dog. With the rabid dog, the Rottweiler standing over barking. I was like, oh shit. The chained up rabid dog though. That dog, because that dog definitely would have snacked on that baby for sure. <laughs> Let's talk about the torture scene where Burns gives his whole third degree thing. Because I don't know about you, but when she chomps the ear off of that officer and then starts laughing... I think that's the most terrified, straight-up fear we've ever seen in Burns' eyes. Did, was yes. that your takeaway, too, that she's maybe the scariest thing that he's ever seen in his career? I think so, because he was so shocked that, you know, she couldn't be broken. As 30 years as a cop, you know, no one's ever survived the Burns third degree. He was so confident that he was going to get this. When she chomped on the ear and just the look of fear in his eyes, she has to be the most depraved person that he's encountered in his 30 years then. It was really interesting watching, and we've seen this kind of evolving. The show actually has done a good job of planting the seeds of Laszlo earning some respect finally from Burns. I think he really earned a lot of street cred with him when he broke down Libby's mother uh, in that last episode. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he hands over the reins and he says, well, you give it a shot. Let's see what you can do. How desperate Burns must be to turn anything over to Laszlo willingly. And Lazo has a great line when he says, you know, you can't break someone who's already broken, which, duh, all you have to do is, all you have to do is take a minute to kind of learn a little bit about Libby to understand the very, very, very truth of that statement. Right. And what's going to motivate her? Yeah, it all comes about. It's all about motivation, which is Laszlo's whole point to Sarah and why Sarah has to be the one to talk to her because they've got a bond that's been created. So it's, it's just knowing the pressure points on how to make someone talk which Sarah has the, the skills to do and Burns and his tub of water does not. I like the fact that Burns said to Laszlo, why don't you just try one of your clap trap theories? He just didn't give, and the moment he didn't give Laszlo the credit, but he said, let's just try anything, basically. It was a slight, but at the same time, it was a step in the right direction in Burns' evolution as well sure. in, in giving that. But I, I just like the fact that he called it a claptrap theory. I don't know why it just tickled me. Yeah, no matter how many steps forward Burns takes in his journey, he, I, I can't see him ever getting to a place where he says something glowing about one of Laszlo's theories. The fact that he lets him do anything, you know, it would be like saying, like telling, turning something over to Sarah and saying, even though you're a stupid woman you know, I'll give you this opportunity to go do this thing. Like, that's the kind of thing he would say. He would never, he would never say, I respect you as a fellow detective and, and person, you know, trained in the sciences. Right. Uh, it would know. never be that formal. No, no. Or, or respectful. Let's, let's skip on down the road. One, how, did you think that she was going to hurt Clara? Libby was going to hurt Clara at the end there? You know, the whole idea of taking her with me, like into the afterlife. And two, what did you think of her speech about how having a baby, a little crying baby, acts as kind of a salve for your wounds for a little bit of the time? What was what was your take on those two things? Because I think they're very much tied together. 
when Clara was first rejecting Libby that she didn't want to go to her when they were getting her out of the Institute. And later on, when Gugu went to investigate the, the noise in the, the old house, I was fearful that the rejection that Clara was giving to Libby was going to backfire in a very bad way for Libby. And when Libby was standing there with the broken glass at Clara's neck, I, I turned away because I just, I did not, as, as a mom, I was just like, I, I don't know if I can watch this. But she ended up, she, she listened to her better angel and she did not hurt Clara. But I was very fearful that she was not lucid enough to make the connection that you've gotten your prize, you've gotten what you want, and now you're going to kill it. So I'm glad that she kind of came to. And then to answer part two of your question, the the notion that she said that having a baby will stop the pain for a little while was so heartbreaking because it was, to me, it was like the only thing that Libby has had in her life that's been truly hers, truly something that she created. Everything else felt like a fabrication around her. She went to Paris. She had all these frilly dresses. She went to school with the best families. All of this was was a smokescreen for this highly dysfunctional family. So having the love and the adoration and the dependency of a child for her, I think it did stop the pain. And I think this was one of the few lucid moments that we've had of her, truly lucid, where she wasn't crazed, where she wasn't murderous, that she was just speaking as it was almost a throwback to the beginning of the series, Libby, the very shy and tentative, didn't almost want to speak her mind, Libby. It was very touching. It was very, I felt it was very heartfelt. I felt it was about as heartfelt as we've gotten from her in a really long time. So I was, I was sad for her because to be in that much pain, to have a baby and then to have her taken away, I just, I can't imagine the heartbreak that this poor woman has gone through. How's that for a turnaround on Libby? I'm glad you said that because, you know, at the end here, I, I have my notes. I have Libby surrenders. You know, a baby helps the wounds for a little while. Then I have a little arrow and it says, do you have pity yet? Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> yes, I have pity. With a little asterisk next to it. So uh -huh. I, was I was watching it making, you know, pointed stabs with my eye. Be like, I hope she has some fucking pity finally for this woman. Yes, um, I but, do. But I liked that at the end of the day, it took Laszlo and Sarah then to kind of double team her into into getting to that that really lucid moment. I, I think she's been more lucid more often than you have. I, I, what? I think that I have been? No, no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Then, <laughs> then you have thought? I, I question whether you're lucid now. Um, no, but when, 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 when Lazo makes the point that Clara doesn't have to have the same life as Libby did, you know, you could almost see her cock her head like the words are getting through her fog. And yeah. then Sarah says, like right on, she piggybacks perfectly right on that. She says, look at her. And Libby does, and she looks down at Clara, and it really kind of snaps her too. That what is she going to do? Is she? I mean, because I think it's fifty-fifty at that point that she stabs her in the neck like she was going to do John early in the episode. I think it's really fifty-fifty before that moment. The idea of if I can't have her again, no one will have her, and I will take her, you know, Coco style into you know the afterlife with me. But when Sarah says, look at her right on top of Lazo's words, I think that really makes her realize, oh, fuck, what am I going to do? Like, I'm not going to, I'm going to consign her to the same life of, of misery and crazy as I had. It, do, it can be better for her. And I think all of that kind of plays across her face. And then she gives that, that wonderfully trembled hand surrender with her hands in the air. And yeah, it was really, really emotionally affecting. I think the actresses just 
did a bang up job all season playing the complexity of this character. Uh, I think she's probably my favorite character of the season. I, I, I think performance wise, probably my favorite performance of the season. Oh, I agree with that. Rosie McEwen, McEwen. She's really done a really, really good job. In... That was an Irish name. I was not going to try. Yeah, but, uh, yeah McEwen. McEwen. Yeah, I mean, she she played a really complex character with a lot of different faces to it, and really did a flawless job. And and hanging in with some major heavyweights, you know, Daniel Brew and Luke Evans and 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 Dakota Fanning. These are not lightweights, and I think she really, really, really did a fantastic job all season. And I enjoyed her story. I think I, in a lot of ways, I actually enjoyed her story so much more than season one because i felt it was really complex and and really easy to see it from a lot of different angles um which always make which always helps keep you invested when you spend eight hours with something it's nice to not be so black and white the entire time where you find yourself lost in a little of the gray trying to figure out how you feel about how something is being portrayed and that's what the season was for me a lot of the times her and her relationship with sarah really kept the ball rolling back and forth all season and i think a lot of that is is her performance so great job great job by her let's move to miss sarah howard next because all season i think libby and sarah have been very much in, entwined like the caduceus right uh, on uh, on the medical staff i think their stories and their personalities and i think so much of both of their lives are intertwined because I think there is a world where Sarah is Libby, and I don't think it's very many steps removed. I think a lot of what Sarah's issues were when she confronted Libby and the idea of her and everything she went to uh, went through, I think a lot of the flashbacks at the end of the episode was Sarah reflecting on how close her life could have become Libby's because they shared so many aspects of the life with the mother that didn't really want them and never loved them. The happiness as a child only when their father was alive. The not having a child versus having a child and taken away and the scorn and the way society puts pressure upon you because of that. The high society upbringing that you've had to kind of shun for whatever reason, uh, either being taken away from you or whatnot. I, I think Sarah, I think as much as Libby sees a mentor in Sarah, which I really think held true all season, we talked about a lot. I think Sarah saw a lot of herself in Libby as a, this could have been me very easily. Let's go back to the beginning of the episode. What did you think of Sarah showing vulnerability about her feelings for John and even giving up that Clara is at the Chrysler Institute to save John's life? Did that surprise you that she would give up the baby to save John's life? It did surprise me because this was very much a shift in the power dynamic between these two, because it's always been this dance back and forth and you, you, kind of touched on that where Libby was looking at Sarah looking up to her in some ways being aspirational to being somewhat like Sarah being very successful and then for Sarah to let her emotions belie what she was actually feeling and giving up the goods to to save John because she was she was unhinged she screamed she's at the Chrysler Institute she was definitely in a very an emotional state. And this was very anti-Sarah that we've seen to this point. So I was very surprised to see her shift, her dynamic shift, because this was definitely not something that we've we've been on par with her for. She was so vulnerable this episode, almost to a point where I felt like she couldn't even control how vulnerable she was. 
it was almost like a runaway cart that she couldn't really keep a, a hold on her on her motion. She could not keep her Vulcan spirit up, as it were. You know, just with John, she couldn't hold a straight face. With Libby, she couldn't hold a straight face. You know, her true emotions were just leaking out and betraying her the entire episode. But in the end, I think that made her more effective. It certainly made her effective with Libby. She was able to gain her trust and learn a secret that Burns and his torture squad couldn't get out of her. And it it allows John to have kind of closure. I think he walks away with a bunch of guilt, but I think there's also some closure to their relationship, all because of her allowing herself to be vulnerable or not allowing herself or her being vulnerable, whether she likes it or not. Speaking of her and John, they have a great conversation in the hospital where Sarah is bluntly honest with him in only the way Sarah Howard can be. And she basically says, you know, the qualities you like in me as a friend are not ones that you would like as a wife. One, is that a fair statement? Two, what did you think that meant for their relationship at that point forward? Did John respond the way you thought he would respond? Point one, I'll say that I don't think it's up to her to decide what he would find attractive in her. I think he sees her for who she is and loves her. And he says for her kindness, her courage, her beauty, her fierce intelligence, so that he, she challenges him. I don't think it's up to her to decide what he loves about her. And then how he reacts, he's on brand for, for John. Like he, he now has made a decision. He wants to pursue it. He's going to convince her the best way he can that it's still the right decision. So I was a little little miffed at Sarah for trying to rebuke him. So I guess in, in that setting too, like I just didn't like the fact that she was saying this in the hospital. He And she basically saved his life by throwing out the information and giving Libby that moment where John was able to, to shift the dynamic back to, to him being able to overpower her. Meanwhile, he was she was slicing on one and a half before two. So that was already like gross. Yeah, I was just, I wasn't that happy that Sarah did that in this setting and basically telling him, what he should love about her as if she has this other personality that we haven't seen yet i disagree oh maybe the setting wasn't great given what had just happened but at the same time they've been having this dance about their feelings he's been trying to get her to have some real talk with him for an episode and a half now ever since they you know they screwed a couple episodes ago and she hasn't maybe the setting wasn't ideal but there was also kind of you know it's finally time like your love for me your pursuit of me almost cost you your life my feelings for you gave up the location of the baby, which costs literally costs Marcus Isaacson his life later on. That's on Sarah for giving that up because of her being compromised for how she feels about John. I agree with her a thousand percent. And John admits this a couple times in this episode, I feel like. He says, I'm a victim of being a gentleman insofar as I don't always say what I want. I'm very polite, essentially, is what he's saying. But he is a victim of his high society and I don't think he really wants a wife that challenges him. I don't think he wants a wife that doesn't want to have kids. I don't think he wants a wife that is going to question his status as the head of the household. He loves Sarah. I believe that with all my heart. But he likes her boldness because he gets to work alongside her. He gets to pursue her. She's a classic example of he wants to pursue her. He wants to bang her. But he doesn't want to marry her because that's not the life John wants. John wants to wake up and have a wife that's going to make him breakfast, is going to pump out three little Skylar Moors, and is going to be the high society lady that he expects because that's what he knows. No matter how radically he tries to change himself, he belongs with a violet. He does. That's who he is. 
You can only change who you are so far. And when she says love that is not truthful is not love, it is only passion, she is 100% correct. He just wants the booty. He wants to spar with her intellectually on cases. He does not want that shit in his bed every fucking night. No, no, no. She is 100% correct. And I give her a lot of credit for having the maturity, one, to realize that, and two, to be able to tell him. Because it would be 100 times worse for her to marry him, wake up, a year goes by, and the two of them are fucking miserable because they're fighting all the time because of this dynamic shift. I liked her as a friend. I liked all these qualities as a friend, but not as a wife. I think she's a dead on 100%. What, what do you think about my idea that uh, Sarah sees so much of a, of herself in Libby in this episode, the, about the flashbacks, the resonating on it, the shared stories in the, in the cage. Am I on track there? Do you think, or am I overstating the similarities and in the, the multiverse, you know, where a butterfly flaps their wings in a different direction and Sarah has the same life that Libby had. I don't think you're off base because that was my reflection too. One of my notes was basically asking when Libby's, words are ringing in Sarah's head when Sarah's at the jail and she's in the execution room. The scenes of early season Libby, who's very tentative, who's afraid to order the oysters in the the fancy French restaurant, to the very murderous scenes that we saw. Sarah's sitting there and she's reflecting on it. And I think that the jailhouse conversation between Libby and Sarah was a very poignant mark for Sarah because that's where you got to see the similarities laid out. And what you said, I think is on point because I don't think that there's a whole lot that separates them. Libby thought that having a baby would stop the pain. And Sarah's world is one of self-isolation. She cocoons herself. She cocoons her emotions. Not that she's cut off from the world, but her emotions are cocooned. So she's different than Libby in in the way that she's dealing with the pain and she's dealing with the aftermath of the events that they've both experienced. So I think that that's where you're really driving home the point. And it's, I think it's correct because there's not a lot that separates them. They both have very, very similar backgrounds and one took a very successful path and one took a very destructive path. The execution room reflection where Sarah's sitting in the chair and in the, the room looking at the electric chair was that reflection. And I think she's questioning if she's making all the right decisions for herself at, uh, on the decision to be childless. And I think that that's what they wanted you to think in that moment too, is that she was reflecting on how closely her and Libby's stories are paralleled and what really separates them down the road. Let's go back to the jail cell again, because this was a really emotional scene between the two of them. It it, it was very much like Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter, but later on in the movie in, in Silence of the Lambs, when they actually have a relationship and it's almost intimate when they, when they talk, Yes. That's how that's how this scene really seemed to me, and that's how it came off to me. So when Sarah lies and she offers up Clara in exchange for the whereabouts of Baby Vanderbilt, and then hustles out without without saying anything because she almost can't look Libby in the face from that point on. Once she gets the information, she finds it very hard to look her in the eyes, and she hustles out and she says, "Lock the door, lock the door, lock the door," and, and she's almost hyperventilating to Laszlo afterwards. It struck me, and I have in my notes, I think this is maybe the hardest thing that Sarah's ever had to do. You know, we have a throwaway line in the very first episode of the season where she's talking about how, about the utility of a little white lie. But this is a big fucking lie that she's told. And 
because she's told it to Libby, this woman that she empathizes with, I don't think sympathizes, I think she empathizes heavily with Libby. The fact that she's lied to her struck me as maybe the hardest thing that Sarah's ever had to do. What did you think of her performance in this jail cell and the aftermath with Lazlo, where she seems very upset about the whole thing? How much was this Sarah being sincere? How much was this was an act, do you think? I wasn't sure how much was sincere versus getting the script right to get the result that she was looking for. As she was saying the details about her shared experiences with Libby, how similar they are, I was like, this seems a little too close. So I wasn't sure if everything that she was saying was 100% true, but it felt true in the way that she was delivering it. So I was shocked at how masterfully that Sarah was manipulating Libby and she was setting up the right checkpoints to get Libby to do what she wanted to do. And when she stepped out and she whispered, lock the door, I wrote in my notes, oh my fucking God, that it was just so masterfully done on Sarah's part that they, I feel like like she's like Rey in uh, The Force Awakens, like her, her Jedi mind tricks, her Jedi force skills, everything is coming to a head. She is, she's telling Laszlo that, she knows where the baby is. Libby's shrieking at the cell door, but Sarah's chest is heaving. Like she's almost going to have a heart attack. And I was so proud of her knowing that this was such a hard thing for her to do. I mean, I'm so emotionally invested in this character that I'm like, yeah, I am proud of her. But I was just like, oh my God, like I cannot believe at how she was able to do the dance so perfectly. It was perfectly choreographed. It was almost like she knew like if, if I go left, she's going to go right. And she was anticipating where Libby was going to be. It was it was masterfully done. And I was just like, I was I was here for it. It was great. Let's jump to the end of the episode in the what I'm referring to as the epilogue. Uh, basically, everything that comes after Libby's surrender. John shows up and breaks the news, shows up at the Howard Agency and breaks the news that Violet's preggers. And without even having to say it, he's he, Sarah even saves him from actually having to say the words. And, and she takes him off the hook and says she's sad, but she's also happy and, you know, wishes him luck. And, and he doesn't fight. He's, he, is, he is going to be with Violet because that's the kind of person John is and that's the kind of world John lives in. And by the way, like I said before, that's the one he deserves to be, not deserves. That's the one he has to be with. No, you mean deserves. That was, that was not a Freudian. Was, no, 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 no. Because I, I, because <laughs> I think, I think John in his, in his sad sack Shakespearean heart, you know, where everything is either a comedy or a tragedy of epic proportions. I think he thinks that Sarah really is the one for him, but because he's such a drama queen with no spine, Violet has to be the one he's with because that is the caste system in which he lives. And it's the only way it works out. It doesn't work out in the long term with Sarah. The sex is probably fantastic, but it's also where they're, they're taking knives to each other's throats all the time. Violet is exactly the kind of, of life he needs, where he can be a father, he can be a husband, and then he can go do whatever the fuck he wants on the side. Not cheating-wise, but go off and have murder mysteries with Laszlo. Go write stories and win Pulitzers with the New York Times. Violet won't care about that. She just wants the name. Anyway, uh, so I feel bad. So Sarah, so Sarah gets from that news. Then she has to go have lunch at the, with, you know, Laszlo and John at Delmonico's. Watch John walk out with Violet. And then she kind of, you know, picks herself up. She dusts herself off and she goes back to the Howard Agency and she closes out the episode. What did you think of the speech that she gives to her employees about the passage of time and how you can't predict how far we'll go. Um, you know, she uses the she uses the advent of light 
and she goes through the history of light from whale oil through electricity as kind of a metaphor for how far they have come in the season, under, underscored by the fact that they're able to turn down the rich white women complaining about their stolen you know, utensils from the maid staff because they're getting high-profile criminal cases now. They're being called in for bank heists. They're being called in for whatever the Kelly Sweet case is. The police commissioner is calling for her help. So she's on the rise. She's gaining respect in circles that even at the beginning of the season were closed to her. And we meet Kitty Burns. What did you think of the speech? What did you did, is she right that they have increased their prominence by the end of the season? And do you think Kitty Burns is one of Thomas Burns's uh, daughters that we have five daughters that we now know about? I think Kitty Burns one hundred percent is of the Burns police commissioner lineage. I there's no doubt in my mind. The speech that Sarah gives, I think, is so uplifting, and I think this is the reflection, the growth that you and I were talking about this season, because we were a little mad at Sarah earlier on for not being as reflective, maybe not being as, I don't know if remorseful is the right word, but we were, we were taking a hard line on Sarah for making some bad choices and not really owning up to them, at least out loud. I think this is that reflection, especially when she says at the very end that it's human nature to make mistakes um, and we're not defined by our failures. So the fact that her flag, her star is on the rise, that she's being flagged for some of these more prominent cases to assist the NYPD shows the evolution of her skills as a detective, as an alienist in training this season. She's taken the reins from Laszlo in a lot of ways. Uh, I really liked the the analogy to the kerosene lamp and the evolution of light that the man with the whale oil candle could never have envisioned all of this and camera pans back to show the sconces on the wall that had that have lit, been lit by electricity. So I just thought it was very uplifting. I thought it was a really good way to end the season. It, it opening the door that there's definitely a future for this, the Howard detective agency and potentially furthering in the series. And the fact that Kitty Burns is standing there, I, it it's kind of full circle and it was very uh, ironic, I guess, in certain ways that, Thomas Burns, and for all his misogyny, for all his, I don't know, what do you want to call it? His just inability to be a thoughtful team member, team player. There's no way you have the, the name Burns. And I did look her up on IMDb and her character's name is spelled the same. There's I noticed no that way. too in the credits. I, I, went, I went looking for that. It was <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I agree. That. I think there's no doubt that she's related to it because I think that completes the arc we saw with Burns starting really in the last episode. Uh, actually, maybe ever since he revealed that he had five daughters, I feel like they've been doing this very slow rehab of Burns. If not a rehab, at least get to a point where you don't think he's the spawn of Satan. And and tonight there were several instances from the from the very beginning where he almost sounds like a populist. You know, where he's talking about how the city doesn't work for the likes of you and me. The you know, if it was your baby missing every fucking cop in Pinkerton wouldn't be out looking for them kind of thing. You know, from there on, I mean, that's like the opening scenes of the episode, basically. And from there on, I mean, there's there's several instances where Burns really gives deference to Sarah. He says, you know, when they get to the Hunter house outside, he says, you know, whatever you need, Miss Howard, my men will provide it. 
you know, he, he gives Lazo the chance to, to go interrogate. There's a whole lot of burns kind of coming around to these, these nutcases that as he sees them, you know, a woman and a crazy guy, you know, doing their, their science, uh, as far as their claptrap, their claptrap theories, as far as policing goes, but he really, he's coming around because the proof is in the pudding, you know, it's their methods that are working. He's going to lunch on it. He's getting credit for getting saving the baby with Vanderbilt and he's desperate. I think so much of his desperation is clinging to trying to save his reputation, but he even he can't deny that the successful nature of this case, the fact that the baby is alive is on the back of Sarah and Laszlo, not him. His, his guys just tortured. His guys allowed Doyle to get their their throat slit. Their got his guys, his ways allowed Clara to be put in harm's way. You know, all of his ways were bullshit and, and didn't pan out. Even he has to admit at the end of the day, Sarah was really the hero here. But I think it's really good that they showed his evolution, too, so that he's not such a hard-hearted ass. And that the fact that his daughter is now working for the Howard Agency is going to potentially further rehab that image for, for fans down the road. I'm very optimistic that there's going to be a continuation. <laughs> Let's move to John, because I think we've already talked a lot about his story because of He's so interconnected to the other stories. You know, he doesn't really have his own line because he spends basically the whole season. Sarah loves me. Sarah loves me not. Violet loves me. Violet loves me not. I'm more interested at the end. In in his wrap up, we learn that he's gotten some kind of promotion at the Times. He's breaking, sco- he's, he's scooping stories. He's, he's, he's on the track. He's trying to get his Pulitzer. They don't say that, but that's the idea. He's writing an expose on the lying in hospital in Dark DeMarco. And then he finds out Violet is Preggers. Where is John for you at the end of this season? I don't want to say series, but at the end of the season, has John gotten everything that he could reasonably expect and hope for in this world? Or is his story still incomplete? I think this is the completion for John. This is where he does need to be. As much as he loves Sarah and he's affectionately told her several times how much he thinks that she is the right person for him, with Violet and him leaving Delmonico's, it feels right. It's sad because of what could have been between him and Sarah. But at the same time, this is where he belongs. He is a gentleman. He is going to sort of buck the trend with, I think, his father-in-law by continuing at the Times because he does have this promotion. It's not a, it's not spelled out, but he did get a promotion. That's the kind of autonomy that John is willing to flex He's not really willing to go all the way. I don't think so. Not not even for his love of Sarah. He's willing to buck the system by denying his father-in-law bringing his talents, which the show the show tells us are immense talents, to, to the journal. And he's going to stay at the Times. I feel like that's a perfect encapsulation of John, you know, sticking it to the man as he sees it. That That's the wiggle room within his society tranche. Is- that he could tolerate, you think? I agree with that. I I don't think you're wrong. I do 100% think that Violet is lying about being in a delicate condition. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Oh my God, you are such a woman hater. Why, why? She is fucking lying, Mike. 
She's not blinking. Where do you think she, how do you think she's going to sell that? This is not, this is not a madcap sitcom from the 80s where she's going to stick different sized pillows up her belly for over nine no, months. No, I don't think this is like a, you, you think, know, you think she's Henry gonna, the Eighth. You think she's going to claim like a, a loss of pregnancy at week 10 and be very, I, that is, that is She diabolical. is not blinking. She is not even looking at him. Her eyes are wide. She is definitely, there is something not right about what she is saying. When you lie, you either tend to blink a whole lot or not at all. She only said, she, uh, we don't even know what she said. We don't actually hear the words. She's, she basically just says, yeah, we've got to talk. She doesn't even say right. on camera. But, but, when, but as she's building up to the statement that they cut away from, she is not blinking. She is just standing there. She's holding her hands. She is not, I don't think she's telling the truth. She's not. Oh, man. We are going to take this to a Twitter poll. And and have Twitter decide it because she is not pregnant. That she is not. If if that is true, that is the worst thought out plan ever, and it is so hokey by far. I it, think it's it a brilliant hurts, plan. It hurts it's my brilliant. brain because it gets everybody what they want. Not everybody doesn't get John what he wants, but Hearst wins because he can't stand to lose, and he will not be shown up by this insolent reporter from the New York Times who writes his stories up there on Forty Second Street. And Violet gets what she wants because she complained to daddy that he's spending too much time with Sarah. And William Randolph Hearst thought that he could get John to, you know, what did he say? Bring him to heel. So that all these, all their claptrap theories weren't working to this point. And what's the one card that they're going to play is the, is the gentleman card that John, knowing that John is going to do the right thing. If, his back is up against the wall because everything else they've tried to this point in the last seven hours of the show have not worked. That is so cynical, Sheila. That is so cynical. I, I, definitely, there's an angle to it that makes sense. It is definitely something that Hurst me. I, I think that's a little beyond Violet to hatch. Oh, this was not on her. It's definitely a Hurst kind of plan. Like, you're going to say you're pregnant. We're, we're going to get him in line kind of thing, if that's true. But I honestly don't think that's right because one i think it's the exact kind of luck that john has of course he knocks up the woman that he doesn't really want to be with you but just but, can't stand john so you just want him to just lose no, at every point no because <laughs> no because he's just such a fucking third wheel i mean ah, uh, i really want her to be with lazo uh, this is not a secret i really fully admit this but john and violet make so much sense oh i agree i agree that they make sense but at the same time they're gonna have beautiful little skylar moors it's gonna be wonderful Oh, they're going to be beautiful because the two of them together, they make sense. I don't know. But, I, I still think it's too, like, Jack Benny, you know, like, you know, like, wah, wah, that's you the know, Benny Hill show. Uh, that, when I say Jack Benny, yeah, it, Benny Hill, yes. It's a little yeah. too Benny Hill if it turns out that she's been no, picking her pregnancy. No, it is not. That would be well-crafted on their part. No. Because, listen to me, everything else at this point has not brought John to heel. So, therefore, that's my theory. But, Twitter poll. Twitter's going to decide. But 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 Hearst tells. And don't you call me cynical, Sheila? <laughs> oh, fuck it, I, I will definitely call you cynical. <laughs> She's a woman hater. She hates the woman. I, I listen. I got you. I got you on board with to have a little sympathy and empathy and pity for Libby. I'm taking it as a win. But damn it, I could not bring you around on Violet. Not even a little bit. <laughs> Man. <laughs> <laughs> dark woman all right let, let's move i also this. know that women do this kind of shit more than you would think i don't think outside of fiction they really do uh, okay 
Let's talk about Laszlo. Laszlo is interesting. So much of his arc of the season had as much as John's story was wrapped up in Sarah and Sarah was wrapped up in the main storyline of the season. Laszlo's really had his whole thing off to the side here. You really could have had Laszlo and his entire arc in a separate show. And it wouldn't have affected, other than making the episode shorter, would not have affected really how this season of The Alienist played out. Which is really interesting. Because, I mean, the show is ostensibly named for him. The Alienist, yeah. Yeah, and season one was by far the Laszlo season. So it was interesting how, not even backseat they made Chrysler this season, but really adjacent. They could have had Daniel Bruhl just be like a recurring like actor in this season. And he still would have had the same impact as far as the main storyline goes. Now, that being said, I've actually really enjoyed his his romance with Karen and, and the way she's opening his eyes further and further. I mean, he's going to be wide eyed, you know, by the end, <laughs> by the end of their trip with Freud. I mean, he's not going to he's going to be like, you know, clockwork orange, you know, eyes stuck open. So so awakened will he be. But between that and 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 Polly and the Chrysler Institute, he really had his whole journey on the side here that had nothing other than checking in with Sarah periodically over bourbon, really had nothing to do with the main storyline. But that being said, we still wrap up his story uh, this this uh, episode. Let's skip to the end because I think it's the most interesting part about his his arc. Is that not the sexiest, uh, highest stakes chess game you've ever watched two people play? I was getting a little hot under the collar. I was like, who who else is in the room with me here? Because it was just, it was a very sexy game of chess. If competitive or speed chess was more like this chess, everyone would watch it. It would be, it would have like a, it would have a regular slot on ESPN, the Ocho. Everyone would watch chess if it was played for the hot stakes here. You know, the idea. Oh my God, chess for stakes. I was there for that. Oh my God. I was wondering where she was going to go with him with that. And that's the beauty of Karen. You never know where she's going to go with it. I mean, it'll probably have something to do with sex because most of what Karen is, is kind of about sex, which I kind of love. Kind of love that about her. She's got, she's full of sass and I'm there for it. I want to give you credit because you totally read the situation correctly. And I did not that last week was an invitation for him to go to Vienna. You and I talked about this and I said, I don't think she was actually asking him to go. I think she was asking him, give me a reason to stay. This episode, it was kind of clear that she was like, well, I'm not going to stay, but you can go with me. So it was it was an interesting, it made clearer the, the point that you seemed to pick up on last week was that she was inviting him to come to Vienna with. Yay me. At the <laughs> end, because they really kept us hanging out to dry until until the very end that he decides to go. Did you think he was ultimately going to go or did you think he was going to stay in New York? Um, I thought he was going to go. I did because I think when he took stock of where he's at professionally, emotionally, he's really been in the doldrums this entire season. So I, I think it was just a natural progression for him to opt to go with Karen. I don't think there's an opportunity out there for alienists at this time bigger than their specialty being included in a medical faculty. Like this was finally some recognition for their craft, their science, you know, they, they dropped Freud. So, you know, how do you, they, I mean, they don't know in 1897 what Freud is going to mean for their field and for just the field of psychology on, on a greater level. I just imagine like what Laszlo is going to learn from Dr. Freud, but I do feel that there was no way that Laszlo could pass that up, even though the Chrysler Institute, that's where his heart is, but he'd had enough conversations with some poignant people this episode, Sarah and Cyrus being two of them, that 
made it impossible for him not to go. Talk to me about the scene with Cyrus. What is the significance of Cyrus giving Laszlo that book? And he, I mean, I think he gets through to him. And I think at the end, he is maybe one of the people who really pushes Laszlo over the end. But I wasn't sure what the book symbolized. But it was nice to see these two old friends kind of work together. And clearly he gets through to him about the idea that when I was at the Chrysler Institute, I never felt like I was really being myself. Essentially saying that Laszlo being so devoted to the Chrysler Institute has kind of stunted Laszlo from, you know, becoming his full self that the author with Karen kind of is giving him. You know, she's giving him a chance to round out this aspect of his life that is very stunted. But I just didn't get what the Frederick Douglass aspect of it was did you have a theory on that at all i wasn't sure necessarily about Fred- frederick Douglass, like the necessity to have him as part of the story but it does make sense because he's somebody who made a, a, an impression he made a mark on society and on history by the choices that he made and he made some hard choices that took him out of his comfort zone he was a, a early abolitionist he was a slave who was freed and worked hard on the underground railroad to free other slaves so there's a, a metaphor that you could use there that this is Laszlo's journey and Cyrus brings it along very poignantly by quoting Frederick Douglass saying that where there's no struggle, there's no progress. I yeah. think that that was a really important phrase for Laszlo to hear. The narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass was an 1845 memoir and treatise on abolition that was written by Frederick Douglass himself. Essentially, it's an autobiography. It was written during his time uh, living in Lynn, Massachusetts, which is where Frederick Douglass settled after running away as a slave. When he when he ran north, he settled in Lynn, Massachusetts, and that's where he wrote this book, and he lived for, for a number of years. The narrative of the life is considered one of the most influential pieces of literature to fuel the abolitionist movement. It really became kind of a must-read for people who were getting into the abolitionist, abolitionist movement. And remember, it, it comes out some... E- no. 1861, 11, uh, it's what, 16 years before the start of the Civil War. So, I mean, it's fairly, you know, prescient in its prediction. It it, it talks about all of his time as a slave. It is a, it is considered so influential because it was a real hands-on, well-written, well-documented account of what it really was like to be a slave during the pre-bellum South. You know, there are a lot of works that came out uh, of people, of slaves, of former slaves trying to tell the story, but Frederick Douglass was gifted in a way that many others weren't, and so his words had a lot of power and clout, and he became a, a big leader of the abolitionist movement for the next 20 years. So this this was an early work of the movement and, and was really seminal. So it's just an interesting piece of uh, literature, but it's crazy when you think about it, when he's handing it, uh, so 1897, 1845, that's 52 years. Yeah. That would be like, I don't know, that, that's like someone handing us a book written in 1970, which is crazy that Laszlo is alive when you think about it, that he's able to get a book that was written the same as if someone gave us a book that was written in 1970 here in 2020. That's pretty crazy. Right. That the Civil War was so recent in this country. We forget about that when we're talking about the show. I think Cyrus's words about you have to push through and you have to go through some shit to get, you know, to be a better you on the other side. And also, by the way, getting away from the Chrysler Institute won't be the worst thing that ever happened to you, I think really gets through to Laszlo. But I don't know. The book just stuck with me. I couldn't really figure out the exact one-for-one metaphor for it. I think it's just about a journey that you have to go on. 
that that makes sense and and obviously it is i mean that's what laszlo is really contemplating here right he's i mean this mm-hmm. is this is not like going to trenton across the river this is a significant picking up your life following this woman who you don't really know that that well you know and going and hanging in vienna with the crazy you know dr freud you know who's about to change the world with his theories so it's a monumentous change that laszlo is contemplating and deciding on in this episode uh, let's back up because all season we were talking about the the arc of Laszlo Chrysler from season one through this season and the need for him to develop some empathy and to, to develop some real human skills, human interaction skills. I think we see the culmination of that outside of Libby's cell when Burns hands off the reins of interrogation to him and says, you know, try one of your claptrap theories. He takes a step forward and then he stops himself and he thinks. And he says, because he's Lazo, he says, yeah, I can break her. I can get to her. I can get the information. But honestly, we don't have the time for that. And he kind of selflessly hands it off to Sarah. And, and not only that, but makes Sarah realize that she's the one who has to do it for all the reasons he sets out, including the fact that they have this bond established of, of shared stories and, and time together. What did that whole scene represent to you as far as Laszlo being the one doing it? It made sense for him to start to be the one to go into the room. We've talked a lot about their growth, him and Sarah specifically, this season. And for me, this was the moment where, like, all of the conversation that you and I have had about his his lack of empathy, his lack of being able to relate to people in certain situations, like he becomes very robotic in certain situations. This, for me, was his handoff to Sarah, that he was able to say, I know this was a moment of humility for him. He's like, I'm not the right one. I do not have the bond. And he's bolstering Sarah saying, you can do this. You share the bond. You know what to do. You know her. You've studied her. I thought this was a really huge step in his own professional and personal growth. I really do. I think it was the real proof of all of the steps he's been taking to better himself as an alienist, as a child psychologist, as a human and and as a friend you know i i think it's not unimportant at the end of demonicos at their final lunch that he toasts to their friendship that's not something that old laszlo would do maybe drunk laszlo would toast to their friendship but this is kind of a new like different man that's you know standing before us and he hasn't even gone on the trip yet this is just from a little a time spent with karen to open his eyes and taking lessons from sarah you know they we talked about how they have a real symbiotic relationship. You know, she she was able to really hone her alienist-like skills from learning from Laszlo, and Laszlo was really able to hone his how-do-humans-interact-with-each-other skills from Sarah. The two of them, at the end of the day, really made the other better. Um, better people, better alienists, better detectives, and the fact that John leaves, and they're still there, and he orders up a couple bourbons, you know, straight up, you know, he doesn't even say neat. It's a straight how up. How Sarah likes it, yeah. Because that's how Sarah likes it. You know, the two of them had a really interesting friendship that we didn't get to see in season one because they were all business. They were very standoffish with each other. Or they were very formal with each other. All this season, you know, he stopped calling her Miss Howard and he called her Sarah all season long. We talked about that early on in the season. That was a big shift where he began to see her as an equal and as a friend. And the fact that they're at this lunch together after John leaves and they're still able to talk, maybe even more honestly because John's not there, cements the idea that 
this story, this two season arc of the alienist was not Laszlo's. It was not Sarah's. It was Laszlo and Sarah's. That final luncheon, that scene, and the way they're just, they're able to talk so honestly about each other. She's able to talk as much as she talks to anyone about John with Laszlo. Laszlo's able to talk to her about Karen, who you imagine he's not talking to anyone about Karen because he doesn't really know. He doesn't understand what he's feeling with her, but he can, he can start to talk that out with Sarah. That's not something these two have with anyone else in this world. And that's pretty significant. And I really, really like how they developed that friendship all season long and how we got to see really the peak of it. Even if the show doesn't go on, we got to see the peak of that friendship in this episode. I agree. The um, the other part for me in the opening up of their friendship was when um, Laszlo and insisted that uh, Sarah come along for John's bachelor party. Just having her for the back end of the night, I thought that was a very important movement for their friendship. That this way, the dropping of Miss Howard in lieu of Sarah, even though it's a downgrade in title, it's an upgrade in respect, if that makes sense. And just making sure that she's along for the ride for his bachelor party. And then this conversation in Delmonico's was just very very much the the culmination of what we needed to see from these two because they have bounced off each other so much and they have learned from each other mutually. And it's just been so fun to see how they've worked together, how they've learned from each other. And I just think that they're just better people for having this type of a friendship. And, and honestly, and frankly, there's no better scenes than when the two of them are breaking shit down together. Oh, hell yeah. Like a tag team. I mean, we see it in this episode when the two of them start trying to figure out where Libby goes next. And they, the two, like, like a well-oiled wrestling tag team, they totally get down to brass tacks that she obviously has gone to her childhood home where she was happy that she's retreating, retreating into this childhood state where she danced and she, she had true happiness for her life. And so, of course, that's where she's going to go. That all happens because the two of them are just ping-ponging off each other like masters. Try being an Isaacson in that situation or a Burns or a John. Or a John, yeah. Yeah, you've got to feel like just the dumbest fucking guy in class when these two start going at each other. Like sparring. Yeah, yeah. but in like the best way. Like to, oh, yeah. To like, like, in solve a healthy a problem. debate. You know, like, yeah, not, not to be valedictorian, but like to solve a problem. Like, like, like they're trying to figure out shit on Apollo 13. That's how Laszlo and Sarah get down. And um, it's really one of my favorite aspects of the show. If they do continue the series, it won't be the same for me if those two aren't there to share those moments. Because for me, that's where the show really pops. It's where it makes me really sit forward and listen and pay attention and just see how they work. The dialogue is so crisp and the acting between and the chemistry between Dakota and Daniel is just so electric to me. It would be a big travesty if the two if if the show continued and we didn't get to see them. It would make me very sad. And there's so much nuances also between them and just in, in their mannerisms, how they interact with each other. What you said about Laszlo taking a step and then halting. That's a very nuanced notion that a lot of people would have missed. And then he stops and he steps back and he, then he's bolstering Sarah. So there's there's so much to their dynamic that gets missed if they're not physically in a room together. It's true. It's true. So. Like John, John and Sarah could talk over the phone and have one of their wishy-washy emotion conversations. God, you are such a John hater. Sarah and Laszlo need to be within within body language of each other because yes. because they're they're reading each other as much as they're reading the room and they're getting they're getting clues and they're breaking down ideas and it it's just so much fun to watch. It really yeah, is. Yeah, there's been times where Sarah's asked Laszlo the, like the puzzled look on his face. There was a conversation early in the season with the Linares baby. He kind of wrinkled his forehead and she questioned his look. 
So there is so much in their body language that goes that goes back and forth to, to propel the story. Before we wrap up for our season, let's talk about some of the side characters and, and how they wound up. I don't want to. I'm sad. I know. I didn't see it coming. Not initially. When Marcus talks to Lucius about having a dream about their mother and it was clearly such an odd thing for them for them to have, for him to have. My first thought, because I was in a happy mood at that point, was, man, if the alienist doesn't continue as it is, I would definitely watch a spin-off series of the Isaacson brothers doing their detective work. Because we forget they're doing it within the police department. They're doing detective science that no one else is doing in the country. You know, right. we credit Sarah and Laszlo with doing so much groundbreaking work, but the Isaacsons are doing within the system groundbreaking work that we don't give them enough credit for. Yeah, like the grandfathers of forensics. Yeah, they really are. I mean, even when they're taking the pictures at, uh, at Doyle's throat slitting and Burns is like, as in a sapphic nothing dignity. And, you know, <laughs> and they're like, yeah, you fucker, because you're going to need it for the trial when we try and fry this bitch, you know, like, like get your shit together man like this is the future like we don't give marcus and uh, lucius no one does gives them enough credit for what they're bringing to the team yeah so i'm sitting here daydreaming as they're talking and you know one is being really fidgety and marcus is loading the gun but he's doing it in such a squinty-eyed way like he's never loaded a gun before and it was just funny like these two are cops but they're scientists really they're 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 cops but they're cops in kind of quotes. They're cops light, you know. They're scientists who happen to have guns. That's what And they have really badges, right? right? So we got to see a badge badges? later on. We don't need no stinking badges. <laughs> but I did think it was very masterful that, that Marcus was talking about a dream about his mother, which means basically that he misses her. Like there, there really wasn't much else to it. But it was a clock at Mendel's and they talk about that. When he said that, I was just like, oh shit, this is not going to go well for one of them. And I thought it was going to be Marcus. And then I was like, in an episode that mentions Freud, masterful. Right. So so I have my I have my fun little daydream spinoff idea where I could see weekly, you know, like a, being a weekly procedural of the two of them going out and, so, you know, using their newfound forensic methods to solve crimes. And then, and then I stopped and the words actually permeated my thick skull. And I was mm. like, oh, fuck. He's dreaming about his dead mother, which he apparently never does. This motherfucker's going to die this episode. Yeah. And then I was really sad. Then I was just dreading them going back to the Chrysler Institute. You know, if they were going to check in at the Chrysler Institute, I was convinced it was going to be where Marcus bit it. And it took quite a bit longer. But then, of course, it happens after the jailbreak scene. And I was devastated. I love these two so much. They're so good together. And they act like such brothers. Watching Lucius be so sad as his brother dies kind of in his arms was heart-wrenching and then watching the shiva scene was you know i don't know the last time i saw a shiva scene depicted on television but the two things were just a one-two punch of just emotional gut-wrenching tear your hair out this is the bad thing that happened in this episode so much good happened in this episode or resolved in a good way this one was a real hard thing to swallow the loss of marcus r.i.p r.i.p indeed so at the shiva lucius is you know obviously having some guilt uh, not surprisingly about the fact that he couldn't pull the trigger, which dude, you gotta pull the trigger. The guy is, the guy is a murderous, like gangster. Like he's coming at you. He's going to do something bad to you. You're lucky. He just knocked you out and didn't kill you considering he was carrying around that pump shotgun. So Lucius, maybe rightly so is, is carrying guilt that he didn't pull the trigger, which led to his brother's death. Did, did you expect to see him again actually pull the trigger on Gugu? I was kind of surprised by it. I was curious if you saw that coming. I'm not sure that I saw it necessarily at the time of the Shiva, but once the events played out and it looked like our team was had, 
there could be nobody else but Lucius in that moment to pull the trigger. So I was happy to see that he'd rebounded, that he was back, and that he got the redemption I think that he needed, that he he knew that he could do it, even if it may not have been in the, the right timeline for what was right and wrong with how everything played out. But I was very happy to see that Lucius was able to avenge his brother. If he doesn't do that there, I don't see how he's able to continue being a police officer. I think the guilt of, of his brother's death would have made it impossible for him to continue on as a as a detective and be and be functional and be effective by taking out Gugu and avenging Marcus's death I I think it's enough maybe that he'll be able to get through to the other side where he can resume his work That's interesting I didn't think of that that's I think that's a really good point And just another great burn scene you know I think it's great it's another aspect of the Burns redemption uh story in this episode is that he's at the Shiva and he's he's there before Team Chrysler or team alienist and you know he gives a really heartfelt you know handshake to lucius and gives him his condolence and he talks about how the two of them are 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 one of them you know he's the one of one of the cop brotherhood and he'll be missed by all it was really sincere it was really heartfelt and there's a there's a burns there's a season one burns there's a most of season two burns that's not there and doesn't say these heartfelt words so i think it was really important that we got to see again this other aspect of burns you know, honoring a fallen brother, just as you imagine he did for Doyle at Doyle's funeral, wherever that was. Yeah, I feel Burns's redemption really happened when he met with Marco and he threatened Marco. And ever since that moment, Burns has been on the up and up. Yeah, and that, he's been rising in my in my my book here. That's where I track it to. Also, that and that's the scene where we learn about the about the daughters, and you know, and that's the same scene where he's also kind of a dick about you know not reopening of the case that kicked off the season. But so he's not he's not even close to being redeemed there. But that's like really the first hints of him rebelling against the upper class society that treat him like the help instead of like an equal, which he bristles at. But it's but it becomes more than that. It becomes more than just his bruised ego, I think. I think it really becomes this idea of we're just being used by the system. I am no better than Sarah Howard or Laszlo Chrysler. I shouldn't shit on them just because they do things a little bit differently. And by the way, they're very effective in what they do. I think that's all part of the journey, but I think it initially starts out at him just being disrespected and bristling at that, at the hearse of the world, at the Marcos of the world. But I think it really evolves into more than just a bruised ego. I think it really, like I said, the populist, he, you know, this idea of he's where he's becoming a man of the people, a man of the middle class. That's really what I feel like is happening to him. And it's interesting. It's an interesting, it's an interesting evolution for them to have, uh, have him take, especially so late in the season. I'd love to go back and see how many times in this season we say that Burns is a piece of shit. Cause we haven't said it now in a, in a couple of episodes. Yeah, so I know. Good on he's us. done a lot of, he's done a lot of rehabbing and you know what? We've recognized it. So, you know, good for him. All right. So at the end of season two, maybe at the end of the series, are you happy where our three characters end up? If this is a series finale, are you satisfied with the conclusion of the journey of Sarah Howard, Lazo Chrysler, and John Skyler Moore? Simply yes. Like I just thought about each of them, just where they started out this season. The season was a very dark beginning for a lot of our characters. Laszlo was definitely in the doldrums and, and Sarah was going through some things as well. But I think for each of them, so Laszlo going on this professional and personal journey, I think is a very smart move for him. If this were to end here, 
for him, I'm happy because he's finally smiling again. He's smiling in his eyes. There, There's a buoyancy to him that we have not seen in many, many, many episodes already. John, this is, he, it's the, it's the life he's, he deserves for his gentleman status, for all of the, I've come around on John, for all of the want of Sarah, he would not be up to her task or up to her level. He would get tired of her, I think, at some point. I think you're right. I think he would just be in it for the fun. And then when she's challenging him on, you know, what to have for breakfast, I think that would lose its luster. And for Sarah, the end epilogue that she gives about this is where we are now, but imagine where we're going to take this. So I think for each of them, this ended on a very positive note for each of them. It feels like a series finale to me because they did kind of wrap up neatly each of their story arcs. I'm, I'm, I'm in a good place for them. Finales are always hard. Season finales are difficult. A series finale is one of the most difficult things that a TV show can do well. A lot of series finales are lackluster at best or complete sh shows at, at worst. If this turns out to be a series finale, this goes in the rarefied column of a really excellent finale. It finished all of their journeys. It put them in a place where you can imagine they're, they're going to have adventures. They're going to go on. They're going to continue to live their lives. They're, they're going to continue to live the lives that they're meant to be living. And you're confident that all three of them are where they're supposed to be. And you don't necessarily need to know those stories. You've got a good sampling of what they are like from the last two seasons. But it's not a question of, oh, my God, what becomes of them? You know what they're going to be doing. She's going to be this detective that's kicking ass in New York. He's going to be living the society life that he's meant to live, John. And Laszlo is going to become, you know, he's going to go rub elbows with the greatest early psychologists of the age and, and make his mark amongst them and, and learn and change and grow. You know, one thing we skipped over was there's this great scene when him and Karen are leaving the Chrysler Institute and he talks about how he's learned, he's come to learn that he's a man and he's not infallible. And Karen, God bless her, she gives him such great sass. She says, you know, it's it's quite a it's quite a revelation to to realize that you're not a god. You know, she yeah. she, she she really mocks him, but in a really gentle, loving kind of way that he's finally realized that he's not omniscient. And I really love that. And then he talks about how he just wants to continue to change and become a better person. And and she stops him and she grabs his head and she says, don't change too much. I like the man that you are. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that the ultimate goal is that we find the person that just accepts us for who we are and doesn't want us to be anything else? There's a, a show called Nosferatu. One of the... Great show. He's actually a villain, but he makes a point to one of our good characters in the show this year. The special powers that they have draw people to them. But once they're with these people, the people start want them to change. They want them to suppress the powers that drew them to them in the first place. You know, basically, my special power that attracted you to me, and now that we're together, you want me to suppress that thing, which makes me special, that drew you to me. You know, you want to change me as soon as you get me. And that, and that phenomenon goes on all the time in relationships. And so I think what Karen is offering Laszlo here, and what Laszlo needs, is someone that accepts him for the weird fucking guy that he is, and says, you know, I think it's sexy. I think it's really attractive how weird and odd you are and how your mind works. I think it's beautiful, your big brain. Don't change too much. You know, live life, experience new things, but be who you are. I don't know that you can ask for a better relationship, a better partner in life than that person that accepts that about you. 
it's really rare. Good for Karen and good for Laszlo. I'm super happy with where everyone ends up. If this is a series finale, I'm good with it. The journey has been fantastic. I'm glad we got to go on it. I'm glad I was I was here from the beginning for it. That being said, let's talk about what happens next. There is another book in the Chrysler series called Surrender New York. Surrender New York is interesting because it's actually a contemporary series. It takes place in the now times, but the protagonist of the series is the leading authority on Laszlo Chrysler and his theories and and has this idea that modern forensic science has maybe gone too far, that we've become too either dependent on it or it's corrupted how we think. The leading hero of the story kind of subscribes to Laszlo's theories and, and, and tries to emulate them in how he goes about his forensic psychology work. He's a policeman who is run afoul of the of the police too many times and he's kind of drummed out of the new york city police and he retires upstate to a place called surrender new york and there's a murder mystery that unravels there you could see where they continue the show maybe it's in the alienist family but they do like a new cast and they and they take this modern view on it that's a possibility but caleb carr has two more books that he's announced in the chrysler series set in the chrysler times one of which is going to be published in September 2022 called The Alienist at Armageddon. And then there's a future book called The Strange Case of Miss Sarah X, which apparently is kind of a prequel story to the first book. It talks about a young Chrysler just out of Harvard who somehow is is involved with a young Sarah Howard, where he's like kind of, he's entwined with her from like afar a bit. and it's And it deals with like the first times that, this young Chrysler comes, you know, comes crosses path with like Teddy Roosevelt, who's just on the rise then. So it's a real prequel story uh, that does not have a release date. But the Alienist at Armageddon is coming out in about the same time frame that you would expect the next season of the Alienist to come out about two year period. Interesting. There's definitely a road here, a path here where this the show can continue if TNT was so inclined and keep the cast together if it wants. Interesting. You've kind of hit upon it before. They could just continue the Alienist series following Sarah and her detective stories and, and continuing to use John. And maybe Laszlo comes back to consult from time to time. Just in the work of the Howard Detective Agency, it could be a, like a weekly show kind of not based on a book but in, or based on the Alienist book series, but not an adaptation of one of the books. Yeah, spinoff, basically. Yeah, yeah. Or like a continuation of the story, right? So that's the other angle that they could definitely take. Dakota Fanning, Luke Evans, Ian Denver, these are like pretty A-list stars at this point. So I imagine the money would have to be pretty good for them to continue to do television. Yeah, TNT's got some options. I, I would be happy to watch more. But if not, I, I've enjoyed the time we've had together. Where we've gone so far with this has been such an interesting ride. I've really enjoyed where the season, where season one started and how these characters have evolved. I think it's a really intelligent show and in how they made these complicated people interesting that they've made them relatable laszlo comes across very very stiff and very stuffy at times in season one and they've really broken him down and humanized him so much and sarah you you've seen her struggles as a woman in in a man's world truly and her her growth has been extraordinary so i just i really enjoyed where the stories have gone how these characters have come 
forward in their journeys, really. And it's just been very entertaining because, again, I said this at the very beginning of, of this season, I love period pieces. And this show, for me, has really elevated the bar on these period piece shows because we get to, I mean, one of my favorite things we do every week is I love to look for history corner things. I scour the episode for the little nugget. And more often than not, it takes me down this wonderful rabbit hole of true history, true crime. Many other shows don't take the historical responsibility seriously. And I appreciate the show mostly because of that. I second that a hundred percent. It is one of the best done period pieces I've ever seen on television. I think the attention to detail is fantastic. And when they do deviate from uh, the truth, they do it in a way that's not manipulative or exploitive. It really just goes to serve the narrative. I think, it should, I think this is the kind of show that really should be commended for its depiction of history and, and the respect and reverence that it really treats it with. You know, they, they could make a show that was really entertaining that didn't have half the effort put into the recreations that they do. When In that final scene, when they lift up the street on Broadway and they pull out of 808 and then they kind of like do like a high crane shot and so you get to see both sides of the road, like the detail in that shot is fan-fucking-tastic. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever they would do a shot from the water looking in on the city, it's not the city of now. This is a real recreation of old New York, and it's so, so good. It was the thing that drew me to the show to begin with that I really latched onto in addition to the murder mystery in season one. And, and I think this season continued that ride in a really enjoyable way. Speaking of which, now that we have come to the end of the season finale breakdown, it's time for History Corner. Sheila, what do you have What do you have for the people for your first History Corner? So when Marcus mentions the dream that he had where he was going to go meet his mother at Mendel's on Hester Street, par for the series, it's a real place. It still exists. It's on Hester Street. It's 72 Hester Street. It's Mendel Goldberg Fabrics. And there was a fabulous New York Times article on the store from 2011 where it goes through the history of the store. So it was opened in 1890 by a Polish immigrant named Mendel Goldberg. He specialized in fine imported European textiles and was often referred to by clients as just Mendel. The fact that Marcus said he was going to Mendel's was very on point for the time, that it wasn't really called Mendel Goldberg's, it was just Mendel's. So to quote the article just quickly, the bulky cash register at Mendel Goldberg Fabrics cannot register sales above $999.99 without a little tinkering. Large sums must be broken into smaller amounts, which are entered separately. Such were the times which, in which this register was made, an era where four-digit figures were rarely spent. Alice Goldberg Wilde, the fourth generation of the Goldbergs to run the store, insists that they'll get a computer soon, but she never seems to get to it. It's as if to say that a computer would be out of place here. It would with the hidden stores that in the basement containing overstock fabrics dating back to like the 1950s. So I just really liked this. I went looking for the storefront. I didn't see a clock above Mendel's, but who knows to say that it didn't have one in 1897. But I just really liked the fact that it was a real place and it has just this own rich history of its own. How about you? What's your entry for history? I, lo- I love that because I, I definitely picked up a Mendel's and it was one of those things that I was like, I wonder if it's a real place. And so I'm glad that you tracked it down because yeah. I was wondering... And, and again, it was such a nice moment where Lucius and Marcus, they, they play brothers so well. And the way they're both like Mendel's, you know, like you met mama, you know, like it was just so yeah. it was it was just so sincere and hard. It was just these two had such great interactions whenever they were on screen together. The brother love and the, the rivalry, but the, the respect was always there. 
Uh, and this was a great scene. So I'm, I'm happy that Mendel's got a mention in this in this lead up to one of their final scenes together. Do get a chance to Google Mendel's. Look at the storefront because there is this fantastic mural when the, the grate is down. It's an amazing mural. So I'll leave you with that. There's a little, little nugget to go look for. All right. So. People, people, and hop, after you take our Twitter poll, uh, <laughs> make sure you go over and Google uh, the Mendel storefront. For my history corner, I actually picked up on uh, Joanna, uh, who we didn't get really kind of an odd storyline they didn't really end up doing much with her john at the end after he, we learn he's got this promotion he's got a new team he goes to see joanna who is packing up her office he offers her basically a spot on his team he, you know he says i've got carte blanche to hire who i want and she turns him down and she says that she's going to work for a, a newspaper in weeksville she's she's moving to brooklyn the two of them are kind of in the know and they talk about how it's more progressive more radical uh, well, John, John says more radical and she says more progressive. And so it, it piqued me because I wasn't aware of we what Weeksville was. And so so I went looking. Uh, Weeksville was actually a village founded by free African-Americans, mostly populated by land investors and political activists. It was named after an African-American stevedore who was originally from Virginia, who was named James Weeks. He actually bought the first plot of land in this area in 1838. The Weeksville village became this this kind of community of freed African Americans, you know, a lot of slaves who were either freed after the war or who ran away found their way there. It was a haven. Their organization, the African Civilization Society, was based out of Weeksville. Now, today it makes up a part of what has become Crown Heights, but for for years it was this own thriving enclave of political activism in the African-American community. And there were two newspapers that were run out of this area, out of Weeksville, begun in the 1860s. One was called the Freedman's Torchlight. It was, the, it was one of the very first African-American newspapers in the country. It was a monthly publication. And they also had a, uh, the African Civilization Society also had a weekly newspaper called the People's Journal. So which one she went to work at, I would imagine was the Freedman's Torchlight. That was the more well-known when I went to do my research. But I, I, again, just a great use of history. Total throwaway. Again, they didn't really do a lot about Joanna. They didn't do a lot about the progress of African-Americans at this time, which I thought we were going to get with her introduction in this in the season. They kind of dropped the ball on that, kind of like how they dropped the ball on the Spanish-American War buildup that I thought we were going to get as a backdrop through a lot of the season. They really abandoned that halfway through. But... I'm glad that they threw in this this important nod because Weeksville has largely been forgotten. There are some preservation societies that have developed in the last few years where people are trying to re, uh, rediscover Weeksville and, and honor it. There's a Facebook page. There are uh, preservation websites devoted to it. But largely, it, it was swallowed up by history. So I'm glad that this show took, took an opportunity to name drop it in a national kind of way and, and maybe uh, draw some attention uh, to, to this important place in New York's history or Brooklyn's history. I just think that's also a very interesting tie-in to the Frederick Douglass sort of vignette that we saw with the tie-in to Weeksville and the, the founding of it. So I just think that's a very interesting roundabout tie-in. My second entry into History Corner today is uh, about Mulberry Street. So Early on, when Burns is about to interrogate Libby, Sergeant Kelly gives him the okay, saying that we, we got the okay from, from Mulberry Street. So that was the original police department headquarters. It's now a five-story apartment complex, but in the Gilded Age, it was the grand headquarters for the New York Police Department. The 
Mulberry Street building was New York's center for law enforcement from 1862 to 1909. And it was located close to the densest concentrations of tenements and was just eight blocks from the heart of Five Points, which is the spot directly between Broadway and the Bowery. The New York Times quoted as saying that no other building in the city probably is richer in memories than 300 Mulberry Street. It's famous the world over. Another article calls it uh, America Scotland Yard. The interesting tie-in to to our story here is there was a state-run commission that was convened in the early 1890s, and in 1895, a reform commissioner was named to root out corruption and the the findings of the commission, and that commissioner was Theodore Roosevelt to uh, to clean up some of the shenanigans there. Interestingly enough, in the movie Gangs of New York, there was a reconstruction of the interior of 300 Mulberry Street in the draft riot scene in uh, Gangs of New York. So, yeah, so very interesting. Glad you tracked that down, because when they said Mulberry Street, I don't think we'd ever actually heard the reference to police headquarters like that. I thought maybe that's what it was a reference to, but also maybe thought it was a reference to the Vanderbilt family, because they were trying to discover where the va- the baby Vanderbilt was. But th- that's some great history, though. New York is interesting because in some places it does a great job of preserving its history, but there are so many places where history has come and gone and important things have happened and there's not even a fucking plaque that something happened there. The, the 300 Mulberry Street, there's no plaque there that would tell you that that was police headquarters. It's just this apartment building now. That's crazy to me. This was, you know, this was like a seminal building where justice was served in New York, where, where you know, the, the police department for the good and bad, uh, you know, for a long time, for an important part of the development of New York City, just gone without even a plaque. That's classic New York, though. It's a city that never sleeps, but it's a city that doesn't always preserve its history in the best way either. My last history corner before we end this very long episode, uh, you could tell that we are not ready to get rid of, uh, we're not ready to say goodbye to the alienists, so we're stretching out this one. It deals with the quote that Cyrus says to Laszlo, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Uh, that comes from an 1857, it comes from a speech that Frederick Douglass gave, so it's it's apropos that He's giving him the book. On August 3rd, 1857, Frederick Douglass delivered a West India emancipation speech at Canandaiuga, New York. It was on the 23rd anniversary of the events, the West India emancipation. Most of the address was about the history of the British efforts towards emancipation, as well as a reminder of the crucial role of the West Indian slaves in in their own freedom struggle. However, shortly after he began, Frederick Douglass sounded a foretelling of the coming civil war in this country. Remember, we're still four years away from the civil war breaking out in the United States. When he uttered to two paragraphs that became the most quoted sentence of all of his public speeches, those two paragraphs begin with the words, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. If you're looking for the entire speech, you can go to blackpast.org. That's B-L-A-C-K-P-A-S-T dot org. If you, you can navigate your way, they have the entire speech that Frederick Douglass gave on that day. I read it before we started recording. Pretty potent stuff. If you're, if you're ever interested in some great period writing, Frederick Douglass is a man to read. He had such a point of view on the world at this time. It's all inspiring to, to think of where he came from and what he was able to put down on paper and, and, and the speeches he was able to give. So uh, definitely check that out. Uh, head to uh, blackpast.org and definitely give this speech a, uh, a look because I think it's worth reading. Sheila, that brings us to the end of The Alienist Season 2, The Alienist Angel of Darkness Season. No. I know. I know. I don't want to. I know, but at an hour 40 plus, it's time to go. 
<laughs> guys, thank you so much for listening all season. You guys, uh, every time we dropped an episode, it skyrocketed up the charts. That's all because of you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for the comments you leave on Twitter, on on social media, everywhere for us at Pod Clubhouse, and you follow our our social media handles. Uh, it's very much appreciated. It's great to see comments and and ratings left on Apple Podcasts. And every success that we have, it's because you guys listen, and we can't thank you enough for that. So thank you so much for listening to Mita Delmonico's The Alienist Podcast. Again, thank you so much for joining us this season. So please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Five stars would be greatly appreciated. Five stars would be greatly appreciated. And if we don't get to see you again for another Alienist season, at least we can maybe meet at Delmonico's. Take care. Bye. Bye. Mita Delmonico's The Alienist Podcast is an original production of Pod Clubhouse, recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, visit us online at podclubhouse.com.